Well, let's uh, pray together as we keep God's word open there at Psalm 23. Our gracious God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear your word to us and help us to be those who rejoice in the Lord Jesus and leave this place resolved to trust in him and live for him and for him alone. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the world is a very dangerous place. And a few weeks ago, I was in the US Embassy in London. It was built in 2018. It cost a billion dollars. It's the most expensive embassy in the world and the safest. It has titanium plates all around it. It's surrounded by a moat. Armed police on the outside, a detachment of US Marines inside. But as we stood in line, I got talking to a woman. And she said, my daughter's gone in to get a visa, and I just want her to get in and out as quickly as possible. I said, why? She said, well, the anniversary of 9-11 is just around the corner, and I think this will be a terrorist target. And she may well be right, because since 9-11, there have been 121 terror attacks on American grounds. And in the United Kingdom, a total of 31 late-stage terrorist plots were foiled in the last four years. So put global terror next to a global pandemic, throw in a global recession, and then all the problems we face in our day-to-day -day lives as we are confronted by evil, throw in the collapse of Christian civilization, our fear for the future for our children and grandchildren, and the world is a very dangerous place. How then do we respond to that fear? It'll depend on who you are, optimist or pessimist, but there's a moment in the Hundred Acre Wood when um, Piglet turns to Winnie the Pooh anxiously and says, what if that tree falls down on our heads? So Pooh thinks about it and then responds, well, what if it doesn't? Optimist, pessimist. Well, I'm a realist. The temptation is to be in denial, but this morning, as we turn to Psalm 23, the great good news is we need to be able to read this psalm and find the answer to our fear as we find faith. Psalm 23 is a beautiful song. Spurgeon called it this pearl of a psalm. And over the centuries, this psalm, more than any other, has been used at funerals. It's been set to choral arrangements, stitched onto tapestries. These are often the last words many people hear before they pass from this life to the next. Though it's the most famous psalm in the world, I suggest it might be the least understood. This morning, we've got to make sure we not just hear it, but allow it to dissolve in our hearts like the sugar in our coffee. Because the psalm opens with the most extraordinary declaration, the Lord is my shepherd. In the original, it's Yahweh, my shepherd, just three words. And Yahweh, the Lord, was the name revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. It's the name mentioned over 4,000 times in the Old Testament. 
It literally means the unchanging, the inexhaustible, promise-making, promise-keeping covenant God, self-revealing, self-defining, self-sufficient, the God who will be who He will be, the promise-making, promise-keeping God, in the words of the hymn, the great unchangeable I am. In fact, in the original Hebrew, um, Psalm 23, the first and last word is Yahweh, because He's there from the beginning of life and the journey of faith, and He'll be there at the end. He's our shepherd. Now, when we think of shepherds and sheep, um, we tend to think of Bo Peep or Shaun the Sheep, and we're a bit sentimental about that. But in the ancient world, shepherds, it wasn't a great job. You wouldn't want your kids to do it. 24-7, you were out in the wilds and in the hills, days on end, working all day, all night in the brutal topography and climates, living in caves, guarding the sheep from predators. Actually, shepherd uh, is also a royal title. In the ancient world, the kings of the nations were called shepherds. It's not a bad title for a ruler, because what is the job of the ruler, the president of America or the prime minister of Britain, but to shepherd, to protect the sheep, the flock, the land? First duty of government, the defense of the nation from attack. So Israel was used to thinking of Yahweh as their shepherd, but there's a surprise in Psalm 23, because it's not that he's the shepherd here of the whole flock, like in Psalm 95, Psalm 100, Psalm 78. Look at the text, not the Lord is our shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd. There's no we or us or they in the psalm, it's all me, my, I. This shepherd is not just the shepherd of the whole of God's people everywhere. He's your individual shepherd here this morning for the whole of your life because he leads you, he loves you, he's with you, he's for you, and therefore you will never be in need. The story is told of uh, an elderly Christian lady and an actor. And they were both asked to read Psalm 23 together in a recital. So the actor got up and read it. And then this elderly Christian lady whose life has been full of pain and distress got up and read it. And at the end, the actor turned to the lady and he said this, I may know the psalm, but it's very clear you know the shepherd. And I wonder how well we know this shepherd this morning. Jim Packer, Jaya Packer, puts it like this, the movement of this psalm is from the danger of pilgrimage through to the safety of the house. And the point is that all the way through pilgrimage, until we get to the house of heaven, this shepherd is with us and we're safe. And we're going to look at it briefly this morning under those two headings, the danger of pilgrimage, and then we're going to end with the safety of the house, the danger of pilgrimage, because the backdrop is the long migration that sheep would often be led in, in a flock. And actually, in this long migration, as the sheep are led by the shepherd, what David does is he gives us three snapshots of abundant provision to show why you will never lack anything with this shepherd. It's like a PowerPoint presentation or photos in an album, three photos or pictures 
Have a look with me. Verse 2, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. So the first picture is green pastures. Now, that looks like a scene borrowed from a constable painting. Um, are we somewhere in uh, New Hampshire or, or on an English hillside in the Lake District? Well, no, because the original setting is Palestine. Don't think lush New Hampshire. Think arid Arizonan desert. Terrain rocky and dry. Grass, if there is any, scorched. And so the shepherd would lead a flock for miles looking for grass. But here we have lush grass. It is miraculous. That's the point. Second picture, still waters. Again, if you go to Palestine, the first thing they do at Tel Aviv airport is they hand you bottles of water because there is no water on the journey. There is no oasis. It's arid, bone dry. And for days, the shepherd would lead his flock to find water. But here, despite the brutal topography, streams of water. The third key picture or word is that word, restores Literally in the Hebrew, he repents me, that's what it says. The picture is of conversion, of salvation, of deliverance. And that's what this shepherd does. And if we had time this morning in the busyness of this day, um, I think we should pause. We could, we could hand around the microphone, and we could invite you all up one by one to the front, and we could all give our own stories and testimonies of how this great shepherd has repented your soul. We'd hear about the youth pastor at your church or the college pastor at your university. We might hear about the mum or the dad, uh, the neighbor, cousin, grandmother, uncle, aunt, sister, friend, colleague, who told you the gospel, and at the age of five or nine or 15 or 85, how at high school or college or work or in the army or wherever you were, you came to faith in Christ. My story, well, I was 20, I was at college, I was an atheist, wanted nothing to do with God, had my own plans, was told the gospel by a guy called Stuart. He was studying medicine. He persevered with me. I remember walking across a field, and this is shameful to admit, uh, saying to God, I knew he was there, I want nothing to do with you. Get out of my life and how I was led by him through the conviction of the Holy Spirit to kneel at my bedside. It was a Thursday afternoon. There were yellow walls, and it was raining. I remember that. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He, he repented my soul. And when we find repentance, we find the, 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 great, the great three Fs. Forgiveness for all our guilt. Friendship with the God who loves us, and a future with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. The French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre cried out that God does not exist, I do not doubt, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot deny. And Augustine, O oh God, you create us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So, Sarah and I love Handel's Messiah, and uh, we, have a, we have a rule, and Sarah's very strict about this, 
We're not allowed to listen to it until Thanksgiving. And then, after Thanksgiving, there's nothing else we listen to until Christmas but Handel's Messiah. We have another rule. She imposes this on me. You have to take me to hear it every year somewhere in the country. So I have to locate it, and off we go. But if you know Handel's Messiah, you'll know that there's a beautiful moment. It's our favorite, where the alto soloist um, sings in a 12-8 time signature, a duet with two voices. And it's very quiet and melodic. And actually, what Handel does is brilliant. He merges two texts. And the text is Isaiah 40, verse 11, and then Matthew 11. And if you know the piece I'm talking about, we move from the alto to the soprano as it starts with, he will feed his flock like a shepherd does and carry the lambs in his arms. It's so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, without realizing it, you switch from the truth about what this shepherd will do to the invitation of the gospel. Matthew 11, come unto him all that heavy laden are, and I will give you rest. There's the promise of the gospel. If you're not a Christian person here this morning, come to Christ. He leads us through his gospel, through his word. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they know me. Well, let's go back to Psalm 23, because where does he lead us? Verse 3, into paths of righteousness. And that phrase, paths of righteousness, Luther translates as Aufrechterstrasse. I did German uh, 35 years ago, it's a bit rusty, but that phrase, Aufrechterstrasse, literally translates, and it's the Hebrew, the right path. So here's the promise this morning, and it is extraordinary. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through in life, if you belong to this shepherd king, he will always lead you in the right path. There are no surprises. He makes no mistakes. Whatever your life story has involved, that was the right path for you. No detours. He's in complete control. This is extraordinary. Our king is sovereign over the macro affairs of the universe, geopolitically speaking, China and America in Taiwan, and he is sovereign over every single detail in your life. He was sovereign over the cereal you chose this morning, sovereign over the socks you put on. This is amazing. Sounds great. But there's a very big surprise, and I want you to see it. Suddenly, in verse 4, it's as if the whole mood of the psalm changes. And suddenly, it's as if this cloud rolls in, and it goes cold and dark, as if a hurricane is coming in. One commentator puts it like this. Now, from a life of abundant ease, the psalmist moves to a description of fearful threat. Probably, what's happening is that the long migration has taken the flock down a deep canyon. And it's so deep down there that the cliff's shadow is hanging over steep walls above, and the sun's rays are being blocked out. It's cold, and it's dark, and it's scary. And the point is that we know that God is up with us on the sunlit uplands where the sky is blue and the sun is shining. But here's the pastoral question. Is he with me in the terror of life down there in the dark valley? 
And to underline the terror of this, what David does is quite striking. He takes two words and he merges them together to form a superlative. So verse 4 literally reads, the shadowiest of all shadows, or if you like, the valley of deepest, darkest darkness. This is really scary stuff. Actually, the word death is not mentioned in the original, but we are in the valley of deepest, darkest darkness, which can include death, but the point is you can be at home or at work and suddenly you're plunged into this place. Isn't this how it works? One minute, in the words of Frank Sinatra, I'm riding high in April, and and then I'm shot down in May. One minute, I'm driving along in the middle uh, lane uh, on the freeway, and, and it's all just great. I'm cruising along on cruise control, and life's just going like clockwork. I've just come back from the New Jersey shoreline, sun, sea, surf, and sand. And then, bang, the phone rings. And it's your physician. And the scans are back from the hospital lab, and it's bad news because it's grade four multiple organ cancer, and it's inoperable. Or it's your employer, because you've been laid off. Or it's the police, because there's been a terrible car crash and she's been killed. Or it's your stockbroker, because there's been a crash and you've lost everything. God may be with me up there in the sunlit uplands, but but is he going to be with me now in the deepest valley of darkest darkness? And there'll be some people this morning really struggling in that place. You're going through serious mental ill health, family breakdown or debt. You have been laid off at work or you face bereavement or there's been a diagnosis or you face dreadful chronic physical pain or scars from past abuse or the haunting memories of past sin. On Wednesday, I heard that somebody I knew had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer It's one of the most aggressive. Um, 10% make it to two years. Most die within weeks of the diagnosis. The valley of the shadow of death. But isn't it striking that verse 4 follows verse 3? In verse 3, the promise is you'll always be on the right path. And now the right path is the darkest path because this is a God who will test us because he loves us. And a lot of pulpits will promise that in that place, God will send down the hot air balloon and just up, up you away above it, or the Chinook to air vacuum out of the trial. You'll never go through trials. God will put you in the Chinook and get you off the battlefield. That's not right. The promise is not that there will never be pain. The promise is that in the pain, the shepherd will be with you. And that's different, isn't it? In the valley of deepest, darkest darkness, David says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And I think those are the most precious four words in the universe. You 
are with me. We assume the valley will destroy faith, <laughs> but actually something really weird is now happening in the psalm. It seems to be strengthening faith. See what's happened? He switched from calling God the shepherds, he, now, he's in prayer. It's you. And there are two things that comforts David in this valley, the, the rods and the staff, they comfort me. The rod was really a cudgel or a club. Think a baseball bat, that's what it is, three foot long with a bulgent end and slate in the middle. And the rod was used to um, pound jackals to death. It was a defensive weapon under attack. And actually, it can be translated scepter because it's a royal instrument as well. And the staff spoke of care. It was used to, to count the flock in at night and count them out in the morning into safety. This picture of the rod and the staff speak of a, of a comprehensive care. This shepherd really does care about you. He's going to defend you from every enemy attack and pastorally keep you in the flock until the end of the age. I was in London just the other day with Emily, our eldest. We were coming out of a theater. We'd seen Mary Poppins in Soho. We came out, and there were hundreds and thousands of people. It was pretty wild, fairly scary. And I turned to her, and I said, Emily, are you scared? And she said, no. I said, why not? She said, Daddy, because you are with me. The promise is not that he'll take the threat away, but that he will be with us to face the clear and present danger in what Bunyan calls the wilderness of this world. Safe on the journey. And then in verse 5, there's a sudden switch of scene, as if our director Steven Spielberg shouts, cut! And we suddenly move from camera one in the world of sheep and shepherds to, to camera two, and we're now all of a sudden at a, at a banquet. A table has been prepared before me in the presence of my enemies, and there's oil and anointing and food. And the reason for this switch of scenery is because the world of sheep and shepherds can only take us so far in covenantal relationship with God. We now need to see the other side of this, not just in the journey, but safely home with a God with whom we're dining, with whom we are in intimate communion forever. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Now, one of the highest privileges for any foreign head of state in England is to be invited to a state banquet by Her Majesty the Queen. Since 1953, she has only ever hosted 100 and 52. Every Chinese president, American president, French president is desperate for the honor of being invited to a state banquet. The protocols are extraordinary. 150 guests, only foreign ministers, heads of state, diplomatic corps, and members of the royal family. Preparations take a year. Three days. It takes three days to lay the table. You can go online and see them. The final build-up arrives, the queen personally inspects, she personally inspects the tables before 8 p.m. when the banquet starts. 
after the banqueting table is put together, a, a decorative display is put up. There are six different glasses for each guest, depending on wine, champagne, water, sherry. Um, the napkins are arranged as Dutch bonnets. Preparations go on for weeks. The banquet is served in the ballroom before the royal throne where Victoria and Albert dine. The queen is the guest of honor. It's a glorious scene. There's all kinds of little uh, traditions. She's a fast eater, the queen, and so when she stops eating, everybody has to stop eating. So you eat quickly. <laughs> and at the end, 12 Scottish pipers uh, arrive and orbit the table to pipe you out. It was a tradition introduced by Queen Victoria. Well, that's the scene here. Oil is put on the head to make it shiny and radiant. It's abundant. The cup is overflowing. God is host. And who are we? We are the guests of honor. And interestingly, this is no ordinary meal. It's a victory banquet in the presence of my enemies. David's life was full of attack. Uh, Saul tried to get him for 15 years. David lived as a fugitive. And then Absalom, his son, rebelled against him. And then there was civil war as uh, Sheba declared himself king. And on and on it went, attack after attack after attack. And David is now looking forward to the day when he's safely home, back in Jerusalem. God is in his temple symbolically. David's in his palace. He's in the presence of God. And the song's summary comes in verse 6. Surely then goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those two phrases, goodness and mercy, or in your edition, goodness and loving kindness, these are the great two covenant words, chesed and emet. Those are the words of the gospel, the covenants of God. And in the original, it's not follow, but pursue. Here's the promise. Every single day of your life, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, two things will always follow you. Goodness, mercy, but they won't follow you, they'll pursue you. Normally, when you're being pursued, you try to get away from it, but actually here, we long that it catches up with us, and it will. Every day, goodness and mercy will follow us, and at the end, if you're Christian, you will dwell in the house of of the Lord, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells as we bask in a physical place full of the mercy and grace and goodness of God. I want to do one more thing before I finish because I think it's really exciting. It is to see this, that the original singer of Psalm 23 is David. David was the anointed king, Messiah, Christ. And as David sings this song, he's really singing it on behalf of another anointed king. And I want to think about that before we finish. Because the editor of the Psalms is highly sophisticated, and he deliberately places Psalm 22 before Psalm 23, and then Psalm 24 after Psalm 23. So what's happened in Psalm 22? 
Listen to this, verse 11. For Christ is crying out, don't be far from me, for trouble is near. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Verse 13, roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. Verse 16, I am surrounded by a band of evil men. So Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. And how does Jesus respond in the face of that, the deepest, darkest valley, but with the faith of Psalm 23? Because the promise of Psalm 23 is that in the face of the crucifixion, there will be vindication in the face of his enemies, which is the resurrection of which Psalm 24 speaks. The abandoned king of Psalm 22 is the trusting king of Psalm 23, is the glorified king of Psalm 24. It's all about Jesus Christ because on the cross, he died as our king. He bore our guilt and our shame. On that cross, he took all our shame and guilt and he paid the price as he faced hell for us bearing the wrath of God at our sin. I remember it was explained to me like this when I was younger. Imagine, Tony, this is your guilt. There's the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. What happened on the cross was the transfer as all your guilt and shame was, was transferred to Christ. The full punishment of God fell on him in our place so that we, glorified and perfected by his righteousness, can go free and find God. I used to work in London, and um, near where I used to work was a building called the Old Bailey. Uh, it's the Central Criminal Court. And on the top of the Old Bailey was a figure called Justica, or Lady Justice. I think your Supreme Court has it there as well. And she holds two things, uh, scales and a sword. That's justice, because in the scales we are weighed and found wanting. And the demand is that the sword of justice falls upon us. Well, right next to the Old Bailey is St. Paul's Cathedral. And on top of St. Paul's Cathedral is a glorious golden cross. Because I'm weighed, and I can tell you, I'm found wanting. But the sword fell not on me, but on Jesus Christ in his saving death. Goodness and mercy will follow us every day of our lives. Well, on Friday, something very exciting happened, which was that I entered the US as a permanent resident. Um, I got a stamp in my passport to say I can now live here for the rest of my life, but there was one condition. I wasn't allowed to enter alone, but only with my sponsor, that's Sarah. Um, she had to enter ahead of me and be in America first, or enter with me. I am not allowed to get into this great country on my own. I'm not a citizen. I have no rights. I have no ability without my sponsor to enter this country and discover the greatness of living here. It's like that with Jesus. We can't get into heaven alone. The sponsor has to get us there, the shepherds. He died at Calvary rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. He is preparing a place for us, and by his death and through his righteousness, he sponsors us 
He leads us through this life and then through death as a shepherd, sovereign savior. So whatever we're facing, however painful or hard, however much we lack assurance, this shepherd will be with us throughout life and then at the end in death. The sponsor, shepherd, sovereign savior stands willing, ready to get us to glory forever. Let me end with one story, and then we'll close. Uh, Some years ago, two Christian pastors were on holiday together in the mountains of North Wales. And as they walked and hiked through the mountains, they came across a little boy. He was about seven, a shepherd. He was looking after some sheep in the North Wales mountains. And they tried to explain to him Psalm 23 and tell him the gospel. He was illiterate, so he couldn't really read it. So they said, look, let's try and teach you the psalm, just the first line. The Lord is my shepherd. It was hard work. So one of them said, look, let's just take your hand. We'll say, the Lord is my shepherd. Can you remember that? The Lord is my shepherd. And as they were doing that, they pointed to the fact that this finger is the finger on which you wear your wedding ring because it's meant to be the finger containing the vein that goes right to your heart. So they said, the Lord is my shepherd. And the key word is my. Some years ago, uh, after this, they went hiking in the mountains again. Same place. And they were thirsty, so they found a house, knocked on the door. And a lady opened and said, how can I help? They said, can we have some water? So come on in, have lunch. As they were chatting to her, they saw a picture on the wall and thought, that looks like that boy. She said, oh, that was my son. But you see, he died tragically uh, in the mountains some years after you met him. They asked more about him, and it was a snowy uh, morning, and he fell off a precipice and died. And then she said, but it was very strange, when the mountain rescuers found him on a ridge, his hand was holding that finger. In fact, so tightly was he holding it, they couldn't actually remove the hand from the finger. And so he was buried in that position. The Lord is my shepherd. Whatever we're facing, wherever you've been, whatever lies ahead, the Lord is your shepherd. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in life, in death, in eternity, you are with us. We fear no evil because you, the Lord, you are my shepherds. In Jesus' name, amen.